thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. All right, so we're going to continue our study in the uh, book of, G- of Genesis, and tonight my, my intention is to finish chapter 3, which will bring us to the point where Adam and Eve are uh, moved, pushed out of the garden. Last, last time, we've, we've looked at the whole drama of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So I'm not going to go back and cover this. Today, we're going to look at what happens after. So I will begin reading from verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest gavest to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. And all the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field." In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, And now, lest he put forth his hand and take 
also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he, has t- he was taken. He drove out the man and at the, at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. As with the rest of Genesis, this text tends to be deceptively simple because we are used to it. We've heard the story so many times that our ears tend to be a little bit dull. So we have to slow down and go through it very carefully. First thing that we notice right away is that in verse 8, we see that they heard. In the previous passage, what brought them what brought them into sin was the fact that they saw the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was beautiful whereas in verse 8 they hear they don't see hmm? which of course brings to mind the words of Christ okay. to Thomas is it because you have seen me and touched me that you believe Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe, right? So most of us hear the good news. We don't see it. This business of hearing is extremely important in Scripture, actually, all through Scripture. We see that the, that the fault, if you will, entered through hearing also because Eve listened to the serpent And our salvation came into the world through the ear as well, because Mary heard, listened to the words of the angel. Hmm? The senses, therefore, play a major role in our salvation. Our senses are very important for our salvation. We are saved or we are damned through our senses. St. Thomas teaches us that everything we know comes to us initially through our senses. So, the implication, therefore, is that our senses are like the first gate of the garden or the first gate of the castle. They are always open. Notice our ears? We can't close them. Right? You can shut your eyes, but you can't close your ears. So, you can always hear. You can always hear. And you can always hear the devil, or you can always hear God. Therefore, that indicates to us that the soul is always open to the outside world, to the world, to whatever is outside of it. The soul is always open. We can't shut off our soul from outside influence. But what we must do is guard it. We must guard our soul. And that's where, you know, the the whole sacramental life of the church comes into play, which I'm not going to spend too much time on, but I just want to um, highlight the importance of our senses. So if you are listening to music which is not speaking to your soul, if you are listening to lyrics which are not speaking to your soul, if you are listening to foul language, you are not listening to the voice of God. 
And as I said earlier, in the spiritual world, there is no void. There is no neutral point. You can't be in a situation where you're not listening to God, but you're not listening to the devil. It doesn't work this way. It's one or the other. Who is not with me is against me, Jesus said. He never said, who is not with me can be, well, neutral or maybe against me. Right? Jesus doesn't believe in Switzerland. So, that implies that nothing happens coincidentally. Nothing happens coincidentally. Somebody gives you a CD of music. That is not a simple act. That is an act where your salvation hangs in the balance. Did you realize this? It's an act in which your salvation hangs in the balance. So that's the life of a Christian. It is a battle. It is a battle for our salvation. Your soul is precious. You must treat it in a very careful way. If you have a nice piece of leather at home, you wouldn't clean it with Javex, would you? It's obvious, isn't it? Now, what is more precious, the piece of leather or your soul? So why do you pour the Javex of rock and roll on your soul? Why would you do such a thing? There is no such thing as good rock and roll, I'm telling you right now. It doesn't exist. The point of rock and roll is to turn you away from God. You want the proof? It's in the pudding. Go visit any monastery you want. Any monastery, any place where you have the athletes of God who are praying. Right? If you want to learn about, I don't know, baseball, you might go and talk to somebody who plays with the Padres, right? If you want to learn about football, you might go and talk to somebody who plays with uh, the Cowboys. Just kidding. Um, if, in other words, you go to the place where you have guys doing this day and night, right? Well, if you want to learn about prayer, you go talk to somebody who is consecrating his life to prayer. They're the athletes of God. Guess what? They're, they sing. They have music. You won't find one of them using rock. Not one. There's a good reason for it. It detracts your soul. It takes your soul away from God. In its very structure. There's no such thing as Christian rock. It's an oxymoron. Don't fall into, for this. Alright? Don't, don't fall for this. Very, very... Briefly, I don't have time to cover all of this, but music is all about morality. Right? The melody speaks to the soul, the harmony speaks to the passion, and the rhythm speaks to the body. Therefore, properly structured music, properly ordered music, has the melody always in control. That's why Bach, Beethoven, Mozart wrote music the way they did. Not because they could not do it this way. Not because they couldn't write rock and roll. They were perfectly able to do it with the instruments they had. But they knew all too well the moral implication of their music. And they conformed themselves to good moral music. Not all classical music is good. Don't fall into this trap either. Mahler is not necessarily good. Stravinsky is certainly not good. Rock and roll takes this structure and flips it upside down. It makes the rhythm the master, the drum. And therefore, it reduces man to a state of a beast. Hence, anyone who's spiritual cannot listen to that stuff 
And anyone who's listening to that stuff simply can't pray. All right? So, hearing. Verse 8. Verse 9. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in a garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. When does God walk in the garden? In the cool of the day. What does that mean? What is the cool of the day? It is the day approaching what? Dusk. What happens at dusk? Light, dim. Indicating what? Indicating that your senses don't perceive everything as clearly as in the midday. Right? And that's the key. God wishes to meet with you but he wishes to meet with you in the cool of the day. You can't go to a concert and hope to find God there. He's not going to be there. You can't go to a place that is noisy and hope to find God there. He's not going to be there. You can go to your room, close the door, turn off the light, turn off the noise, close your eyes, and say what Samuel said. Here I am, O Lord. Speak, your servant is listening. The cool of the day. If you are afraid of being alone. Listen carefully to what I'm trying to tell you now. If you are afraid of being, of being alone in a room. In the dark. You are under the influence of the devil. You're not possessed. You're not obsessed. You're under his influence. Because that's exactly what he wants you. What he wants to prevent you from doing. Being able to sit in that one place where God is going to come and meet you. So, I don't know how many of you has, have done the same stupid thing I did when I was young. Because I didn't know any better and there was no one to tell me otherwise. Watching horror movies. How many of you watching horror movies? How many of you have watched horror movies? Okay. The purpose, the, the one thing that horror movies does to your soul beside the first fright is that it anchors in your mind images that the devil can use against you. The imagination is the most angelic faculty in the human mind. It is through the imagination that angelic beings, whether demonic or angelic, speak to you. So, the more beautiful images you put in your mind, the more beauty, the more serenity you have in your mind, the greater is your ability to hear your guardian angel. And the more horrifying images you put in your mind, the more um, dirty images you put in your mind, the more amenable are you to hear the voice of the devil. You get it? Simple as that. So, if you've had the misfortune of watching horror movies, I'm really sorry for you, do a couple of things. Number one, don't do that again. Do not watch horror movies. They are part of what Jesus warns us about in the book of Revelation. Those who are wanting to learn the deep things of Satan. Curiosity is not a virtue. Curiosity is a sin. It's a vice. Curiosity is wanting knowledge for the purpose of self-gratification. For the sole purpose of satisfying a need that has no good in it. That is not the same thing as thirst for knowledge. Not, don't confuse the two. And therefore, horror movies thrive upon that curiosity. 
shy away from them. And if you were under those, or if you know friends who are afraid of the dark, who cannot sleep without light or noise, ask them, help them to meditate, to meditate on the power of their guardian angel. Help them to come to know their guardian angel. Because it is in the knowledge of our guardian angel that we find peace. Here is this incredible being who's been a saint for billions of years, who see the face of God, who see the Trinity just as the Trinity is, and who walks next to us. And we tend to ignore him. We're not even aware of his presence. As we grow in the presence, in, in, in our awareness of our angel, guardian angel, and we know he's always with us, then we do what Genesis asks us to do. We make the, the night, we make darkness natural. We strip it away from any power it may have over us. And now we're back to the cool of day where we can meet God face to face. Grace builds on reason. Grace builds on nature. So therefore, in order for us to grow in grace, we have to heal our nature. If you're afraid of the dark, if you can't sit, if you're fidgeting, if you sit down and you try to pray and all that comes in your mind is this constant beat of music, you're going to have to heal all this. It takes time. But it's in doing so that you truly find peace. The peace that God wants to give each one of us. Notice God did not intervene in the activity of Adam and Eve. Because God wants us to be responsible for what we're doing. He loves us, therefore he wants us to be responsible. He respects that freedom he gave us. But now he comes back. He says, he called to the man and said to him, where are you? By the way, most of us tend to think of God now as God the Father. Right? We tend to think of God as sort of non-Trinitarian God, as just one God. The Trinity came with Jesus. Before Jesus, there was no Trinity. And when Jesus came, there wasn't Trinity. No, that's nonsense. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul tells us that everything that was made was made for him, in him, and through him. Jesus was involved in the creation of the world from the very beginning. And he was Adam's best friend. How do we know that? A good friend doesn't let you down, right? When you have a problem, he comes and he takes care of you. That's exactly what he did. He died for his friend Adam. So never, never, this, never take this image of God here and sort of separate it from the God-man on the cross. It is one and the same. It is one who administers the curse and is the one who brings forth the medicine. So he says, where are you? What, what does that question mean when God says, where are you? Let me... Try and paint a picture for you. Because you, we, you might think of it as sort of, Yoo-hoo, where are you? I can't see you. Can you come out? That's not what God is saying. It's much more profound. To just illustrate this, imagine that somehow you and your friends are at home and you're having a party and you decide that it would be really, really, really amusing if you made whipped cream enough to cover the kitchen. So here you are with your friends, waist deep in the whipped cream in the kitchen. And then you turn around, and your mother is right there staring at you. 
Can you capture this moment when reality comes crashing into in, 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 in the fantasy you just created? And your mother says, what are you doing? Do you think she means how much whipped cream you used? Do you think she means, I'm really curious to know how you did all this, because I'd like to do it again. Is she asking a technical question? No. She's asking an existential question. It's a very deep question that she's asking you. It's, what are you doing with your life? What is the meaning of all of this? In the grand scheme of things, where are you? That's what God is asking. Where are you? That is the foundation of the personal prayer. That is why when we pray, we go into our room, we close the door, we shut up. At least we try. This is not the time to stand before God and give Him a list of all the things we want. Dear Santa, I mean, dear God, I'm sitting here to pray, and here are the list of all the things I want. And please give them all to me yesterday. Thank you very much. Whew, I spent two minutes with you, now i got to run. Where's my pager? Where's my text messaging? Where are you? God initiates the conversation. He comes to us in the cool of the day, at His own hour. And then, the very first thing He does is help us conduct what? A examination of conscience. That's what where are you means. Have you been faithful to the commandments? Where are you? So therefore, when we start our prayer, we do precisely this. We examine our conscience through the Ten Commandments. Have I been faithful to God? Or have I taken something else as my God today? We run down the Ten Commandments. And we ask our guardian angel, our faithful friend, to help us examine our conscience. So that when we go to confession, we can have a good confession. That is the life of a Christian. If you're not doing this, if you're not doing, if you're not trying to do this, right? If you are not considering this to be a very important part of your life, you would be like somebody who takes a shower when his mother-in-law visits from Afghanistan, which means once every five years. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? It means that right now, if we were suddenly given the gift, or maybe the curse, of smelling sin, we'd probably lose consciousness. Because we would stink. If you are not going to confession regularly, your soul stinks. I mean, we understand this about the body, which is an example, which is there to show us in physical, sensible terms why confession is important. We have no problem of washing our bodies once a day. Some of us are actually washing our bodies twice a day. Morning and evening. No problem with that. We have no problem using deodorants and a bunch of other things, perfumes and whatnot, to smell good. But what is the body? The body is the soul informed. If you're taking such a good care of your body, and you should, why are you neglecting your soul? I mean, God teaches us through natural means. Doctors tell women, you must inspect yourself 
so that you may detect breast cancer early on. Why do you think this is happening? Don't you see the hand of God pointing to us in physical terms what we should do about our soul? If we take such good care of ourselves to make sure that if there is a disease, we can detect it right away so we can take care of it right away. Why aren't we doing the same thing with our soul? So when we detect a venial sin, we take care of it before it becomes a mortal sin. You can't be serious about your faith and not go to confession. And that's why most of us have absolutely no excuse when we show ourselves before God. He, he says to us, I've been waiting for you day after day for you to come and visit me so I can take care of you. And you ignored me all these years. And now that you show up before my face, you want me to just tell you to come in? Stinky as you are? So please, if you have not been to confession in a long time, just go. Don't agonize over it. Just go. And you will see how wonderful it is. Because it is Jesus waiting for you. You tell Jesus you love Him? Well, go visit Him. He's going to sit with you and He's going to give you way more than you think you're giving Him. Now the man said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's a loaded sentence. First of all, I hear the voice of thee in the garden. In the Hebrew, that sentence, I heard the voice of thee or I heard the voice of you, can be translated as, I obeyed you. Right? you could, the Hebrew expression can be translated as, can mean, I obeyed you. Which is such a sarcastic sentence. Because he precisely disobeyed him. He precisely disobeyed him. So it's really interesting. So I heard the voice of you and I, I hid myself because I was naked. Alright. Is Adam hiding because God can't see man naked? Is that the problem? No. Again, let's learn from kids. Go home and you're looking for your favorite daughter. She's six years old and she's nowhere to be found. So you're looking for her. And then you see something move behind the curtain. And you pull the curtain out. And here she is. And her face is full of chocolate. So she says, I heard your voice and I was afraid because my face is full of chocolate. Is that why she's hiding? Because her face is full of chocolate? No. She's not supposed to eat the chocolate. That's why she hid. Now notice what he does. He doesn't say, I hid because I did something bad. No. He excuses himself and simply gives the symptom, I was naked. My face is covered with chocolate. Notice the passive tone, I was naked. Not, I did something wrong. I'm the object of the action, I'm not the subject. I'm not the one who did something, I'm, I'm just naked. Notice that? We do it all the time. We do it all the time. If God blessed you, brothers and sisters, remember the time when you went through the she said, he said type of thing. This is exactly what's going on here. I didn't do it. She did it. No, I didn't do it. You did it. No, I didn't do it. You. So, part of the examination of conscience is that God helps us and teaches us to own up to our sins. Why is it important to own up to our sins? God is not in the judiciary. He's not trying to create soldiers. He wants a relationship of love. 
And love is based on trust. If I can't trust Jesus enough to know how weak I am and to forgive me, I'm not going to love him. But if I do love him, I will readily admit my sins and ask for his forgiveness. And ask him, plead with him that he may give me the grace not to repeat them again. Not because only they are ugly, but because they offend him. Because they offend him. Because if you love Jesus, you don't want to offend him. If you love your parents, you don't want to offend them. If you love your wife, your, 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 your uh, fiancé, your brothers, your sisters, you just don't want to offend them. This is what love is all about. But that doesn't come naturally to us. He teaches us this. He gives it to us. He teaches us to imitate him. Without him, we can't imitate him. We need Him to teach us how to imitate Him. Now, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Notice the way Jesus asks questions. You know how God talks. There's no yelling. There's no screaming. There's no shouting disrespectful words. There's no losing His temper. There's no, How could you have done this to me? I gave you everything. Why didn't you? There's none of that. Who told you you were naked? Notice the respectful tone. Who told you you were naked? God respects Adam, even though Adam is the guilty one. Why did he ask that second question, who told you you were naked? Don't you think God knows who told him he was naked? Yes. So, I'm asking my daughter, who told you to eat the chocolate? Don't I know nobody told her? I do know nobody told her. Why am I asking her that question? Because I want to give her a chance to do what? To come clean. Sorry, Daddy, I did it. I'm sorry. I don't want to do it again. Right? Something like that. That's why the question is being asked. God gives us multiple chances. And then what did Adam answer? Because then God is leading him. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Talking to my daughter. Did you eat of that chocolate cake without asking mommy? Why? Because words of sorrow are hard for the hardened heart. When our heart becomes hardened, saying I'm sorry and meaning it is a really tough thing to do. Those of you who have kids know what I'm talking about. Okay, say sorry to your brother. Sorry. Okay, could you please say it better? I mean, like you mean it? I'm sorry. Just, there's nothing. You can't, it's like taking a stone and trying to squeeze lemon out of it. Good luck. Not going to work. So that also shows the limitation of what a parent can do. You need to pray and sacrifice for your children because they are in need of it. They need your love, but your sacrifices as well, so that God's grace may touch their heart and change their hearts into hearts of flesh. Job sacrificed every morning when he woke up. Even though his children were grown, he would offer sacrifices on their behalf, lest they may have sinned. So parents, or those of you who would become parents, think this way. Offer up all the pains and all the sorrows that will come to you this day as a sacrifice of reparation for your sins and the sins of your children and wife or husband. Because in this way, you sanctify your family. And that is part of the power that Jesus gave us. That's the, what we call the 
priestly power of every baptized. To join our sacrifices with that of the Mass. So we do that. Now, instead of this, what does the man say? The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So notice, this was the, at last, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, like, you know, two paragraphs earlier. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Now she became the woman, not the woman who I said she is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. No, no, no. The woman whom thou gavest to me. It'd be like my daughter saying, well, the cake that you bought and you put in the fridge and when I went into the kitchen, the fridge door called to me. That's what's going on here. There's a complete let go of his responsibility as a man. The woman whom thou gavest to me, she gave me, ah, I just ate. Poor me. I just opened my mouth. That's all I did. Now there is, a, there is something very profound going on here. Who's Adam and Eve? They are the best of our race. They are the best of our race. Would you agree? They were created perfect. We're all created with original sin. They were not. With the exception you know, of Our Lady. But the whole, whole human race is born with original sin. They're not. And look at the marital relationship they're in right now. Look at the discord. What does that suggest about marital relationships today? It suggests that it would be completely natural to expect that you would have arguments in any marriage. It is part of our fallen nature. You have to have realistic expectation about what marriage is all about. What makes marriage a miracle is precisely the work of grace and marriage that works to correct these tendencies and turn a man and a woman into a beacon of love. But without the grace of Jesus Christ, it is nearly impossible to do. It is nearly impossible to do. Alright, so, so those people who want to live together and who want to do all these wonderful things relying only on themselves, they're like Adam and Eve before the serpent. If Adam and Eve could not resist, how will they be able to resist? There's not a chance in the world that they will. That is why it's so important for us to constantly evangelize, constantly bring the church to the world because the world is in a desperate need of the church. Without the church, the world is gone. I am convinced that when we will be in heaven, God willing, we're going to stand in heaven and be awestruck, be awestruck at the fact that the world did not obliterate itself and human beings did not destroy each other for so many hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, because of the Catholic Church. Because of the Catholic Church. People think the world is in a terrible state right now. Imagine what the world would be if there was no Catholic Church. That's what we're going to realize fully when we're in heaven. Now, when he says that, God simply turns to the woman. He takes the word of the man apparently for granted. And he said to the woman, 
Why? What is it that you have done? The woman said, notice, we're passing the buck again. The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. You notice, and I ate. The man said, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the woman says, the serpent beguiles me, beguiled me, and I ate. So what is the woman to the man now? She's like the serpent. The flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. It's amazing. I mean, the change, the change is, is incredible. So now, God turns to the serpent, and guess what? That's the end of the line. There's no buck to be passed. Right? In the case of the serpent, there's no interrogation. He doesn't ask him, why did you do such a thing? How come did you do this? You notice? He doesn't ask... He does not question the serpent. Why doesn't he question the serpent? What is it that Adam and Eve are capable of that the serpent is not capable of? Repentance. Repentance. Precisely. God asks questions as long as we are willing to repent. What does that mean? It means your conscience pricks you. When you are living in a state of sin, your conscience is pricking you. When you're doing something that is contrary to the law of God, your conscience is like a, a fly. You know how a fly is around you all the time? right? You know why we have flies? To remind us of conscience. That's the purpose of flies. Here we are sitting comfortably enjoying the day and this fly comes by. And it's so annoying. right? You just want to swat it. Its purpose is to remind us we have a conscience. So when a fly comes by, God is saying to us, are you watching over your senses? Always use the fly as a, re a reminder of what you're doing with your senses. It's a symbol of your conscience. right? And oftentimes, the conscience of a sinner is like a fly. What is the fly's favorite food? You're following my drift? Yeah. Precisely. And that's what happens to the conscience of a sinner. There is a, a Jewish man during the Second World War who was running away from the Nazis. And he got to a farm. And the only place he could hide in that farm was in a heap of dung. Cow's poop. Manure. And he plunged in completely. And he said, during the first hour, he could barely stand it. He's about to just get out and say, take me, do whatever. Anything is better than this. From the second to the fifth hour, he was able to manage it. After the fifth hour, he said, the smell actually became quite pleasant. We are capable of adapting to anything. That's the scary part. And that's exactly the progression of sin. The first time we commit that sin, our conscience bothers us. The second, third, fourth, fifth time, it becomes dull. And after the fifth hour, God's wrath is upon us because there is there's no more conscience to speak. 
You understand why it's so important to do this examination of conscience? So that we can keep our conscience keenly oriented towards the good and not allow it to slip into bad habits. For instance, I'm going to say this to the boys especially. You're having a conversation with a friend and in the middle of the conversation something happens. You hurt your nail or what have you. And you use the name of the Lord in vain. You use the name of the Lord in vain. If at that instant you were to die, you would then find yourself holding a one-way ticket to hell. We have such a dulled conscience that we are not aware of the holiness of God and how it is important for us to be very, very careful with the way we speak of Him. So, if you are in that habit, please go to confession and work your hardest to get away from it and clean your mouth. And if you have friends who have a foul mouth, do them a service and be upfront with them, be with a two by four and tell them, in my presence, you will not speak like this or I will not be in your presence. Period. I do this at work, not just with my friends. I will not allow someone at work to speak to me with a foul language. I will not be a witness of this because I don't want to give account to God and tell Him I was ashamed of you and I did not speak up. You have to do the same. So then the serpent, and the serpent, Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, we need to understand this in its proper context. In antiquity, it was believed that the serpent used to walk. Why? Because there's a relationship between the serpent and the dragon. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the same word is used here for serpent, is used also in the Apocalypse. Word dragon. The dragon had feet. The dragon could walk, could fly. The notion, therefore, is that this creature that could stand upright now is forced to go on its belly, which is what? It's a position of a slave. Therefore, there is a sense of loss of what? Power. There's a loss of power. The second verse can be more problematic. Cursed are you above all cattle. Wait a minute, God. Where did you curse the cattle? <laughs> I mean, we haven't heard anywhere in Scripture up to this point where God's saying, cursed be the cattle. So what's up with that? As I told you before, we have to understand Scripture in its proper context. Remember that back then... When the text was penned down, the Jews were living in Babylon. Right? In the Babylonian mythology, how are gods represented? Animals. You understand? So again, this is a direct attack against all those gods represented in forms of animals. Which are actually statues representing demons. What is going on here is that God is telling Satan, you, above all other demons, carry the greatest guilt and therefore will be accountable for the greatest suffering. Just as in heaven you have degrees of happiness, in hell you have degrees of damnation. Not everyone suffers equally. 
and he will suffer most. The, the, the amazing thing, or the, the, the horrifying thing, is that Satan knows that every time he tempts one of us, every time he tempts one of us, every time he causes one of us to sin, every time he is the cause, or the, well, maybe not the proximate cause, but the cause of someone falling in hell, his suffering increases. Imagine a creature that hates us more, in a sense, than the suffering. It's gonna inc- he's willing to increase his suffering if he can bring us into hell. It is something we, can't ima- we cannot understand, Satan. It is beyond our understanding because there is no human being who is pure evil. Satan is pure evil, meaning this is a creature that has completely and absolutely rejected any presence of God in his life. We just can't understand that. And so here, he undergoes that curse, which is going to be constantly repeated throughout history every time he actually does that. So, oftentimes the subject comes up, the, I, and I, I, I've pointed that out to you at different Time people have a difficulty with the position of the church as far as the death penalty goes. Remember one thing at the end of the day, when what really counts is where we're going to end up in heaven or in hell, and the degree of beatitude or the degree of damnation we're going to end up in. When a man is trying to commit a mortal sin, and if the only way you have to stop him from committing a mortal sin say by harming somebody, he's harming you or your children, or doing something harmful. And the only way, the only possible way for you in a situation is actually to kill him. You're not doing this just as in, as in self-defense, meaning just for your own interest. You're also doing this for his interest. Because if you prevent him from committing that greater evil, you've lessened his judgment. So, the position of the church around death penalty does not entail only this world. It concerns the next. That's why the church will never be against the death penalty. What John Paul II has stated is that in modern societies, where we have the infrastructure that we have, we have the ways or the means to stop someone and provide a punishment that gives him the chance of repenting. That was the, the whole point of his reflection. He wasn't reneging on the teachings of the Catholic Church about the death penalty. No, no, he, was, he made a comment about the death penalty. It's not about being in favor. The people interpret his comment as, as if he's saying, moving forward, the Catholic Church is not in favor of the death penalty. The Catholic Church, even in the Catechism, is very clearly stating that the death penalty is, um, is the right of... Uh, human society. This is not taken away from us. Right? But in modern societies, we may not need to apply it as you would, for instance, say in a place where you really don't have the infrastructure from stopping a madman of killing people. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. All right, this verse alone is of profound importance. Profound importance. I will put enmity between you and the woman. In, in, initially, you might think that the enmity he's going to put between the serpent and the woman would be the woman, which is Eve. And to a certain degree, this is true. To a certain degree. But here's the problem. 
enmity supposes what? Absolute, absolute um, opposition. Like water and sulfur. Like black ants and red ants. You just can't mix the two. You can't. If you've never seen that, you haven't seen what Armageddon would look like. When I was in the forest in Lebanon, that was one of my past time. I'd spend days finding um, a, um, a colony of red ants, and then days finding a colony of black ants, and then days trying to coerce them to meet. <laughs> because the day they meet, you'd be looking straight out, you see this red ant and this black ant walking by peacefully, and their antenna touches, and before you could blink, one of them is cut in half. And then you should see the war between the two colonies. I mean, I should be bragging about this, I suppose, but <laughs> let's just say it was a scientific experiment. Right. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. So I use that as the example I'm talking about. That enmity is complete. Therefore, St. Ephraim, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, and other fathers have seen in this, and rightfully so, the first prophecy about Our Lady. Because the true enmity is between the one who is spotless, Mary, and Satan. Okay? When he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, what he means is that I will preserve her from sin. Because none who is born into sin can be said to be in enmity with Satan. When we are born into the world, we are born with original sin in our soul. Therefore, Satan claims us. We belong to him because of what Adam and Eve did. Jesus Christ then says, through the sacrament of baptism, what is sacrament in Latin? Sacramentum, oath. It's an oath. Jesus made that oath. I swear by my name, as he did to Abraham, that I will pay the price. And I did. So he paid the price to save you. He bought you back. He paid the price to buy you back to him. You belong to him. Right? So especially you women, when you hear a woman say, it's my body, I want to do whatever I want with it, remind her, if she's Christian, if she's been baptized, that it's not her body. She didn't pay the price for her body. Jesus did. She belongs to him. So, that's why Eve cannot be in enmity. She just showed us she was in collusion with him. Now she fell into sin. And redemption hasn't come. How could she be in enmity? So obviously that cannot be the woman he's speaking of. And the woman he's speaking of is the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, the objection that came through was that, well... If Mary is born sinless, spotless, without sin, she did not need to be saved by Jesus Christ. If she's born without sin, she did not need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And that's the argument that had stopped St. Thomas Aquinas from agreeing or accepting the idea that Mary was immaculately conceived, something that St. Ephraim sung in his hymns. Right? Only you and your mother, O Lord, are spotless. St. Ephraim declared. He didn't elaborate, but he declared it. Now, how do you make that work? You, have to, you cannot say that somebody can be born without sin apart from Jesus Christ. No one can be saved apart from Jesus Christ. Therefore, how could Mary be saved, be born without sin, 
apart from Jesus Christ. And the resolution was actually relatively simple. Here's how it would go. I'm telling you this because you might be confronted with Protestant friends who will present you with this argument. So, here's how it goes. Let's say you have a man standing in the forest next to a ditch, a big hole. And there's this man running in the forest. And then he falls in the hole. Now, this man goes to the hole and pulls him out. Next comes this woman walking by, and he stops her before she falls in the hole. Have both of them be saved from the hole. Did he save both of them? Yes. She, before she fell, and he, after. But both are saved. Do you understand? That's how he saved his mother. So before original sin entered her soul, he paid the price. He said, put it on my credit. I'll pay later. Alright? That's exactly what he did. And that's why she's born absolutely spotless. Mary never knew sin. Never knew sin. At the time of her birth, at the time of her birth, she was spotless. Now, I want you to try and imagine this about her. This is a really good point of meditation. Mary carried Jesus in her womb for nine months. Right? We receive communion, and when we receive communion, Jesus is present in us as long as the host is full, meaning it hasn't decomposed, it's still a host. It takes about 10 minutes for this to happen. So on average, you can say that Jesus is physically, in a sense, present in us for about 10 minutes. This is why after you receive communion, you need to recollect yourself silently, because God is in you. And you do Him the homage by praying. You know, Father Nabil multiple times has told us, has taught us to close our eyes after communion. There's a really good reason. God is in you. Who are you looking at? It's like almost committing um, idolatry. God isn't present in us and we're watching who's receiving communion and how they're receiving it. Close your eyes. God is in you. Thank Him, give Him glory, give Him your weak, tell Him to be with you, offer Him all the sufferings and pains you're going to go through, and offer Him all the good things that can come to you as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Do that when you receive Him. Now, ten minutes. Well, I did a little calculation. I took nine months, and I divided them by ten minutes. And I, I thought to myself, all right, how many times must one receive communion before he can equal the presence of Jesus in his soul while he was in the womb of his mother. It's 110 years. You have to receive communion daily for 110 years before, you, before Jesus is in you for the length of period he was in his mother. Now, he, in, his case, in her case, he was in her nine months straight, non-stop. God was in her for nine months straight, non-stop. That is why the glory of Our Lady surpasses the glory of all the saints and of all the angels put together. That's when she was carrying Him. The glory of Mary surpasses the glory of all the angels and all the saints put together at the time she was carrying Him because no one else did that. 
Now imagine all the graces she received as she actually taught God the word of God. She taught God the Psalms, which he inspired. Imagine that. God condescended to have her teach him the Psalms. And he lived under her roof until he was 30 years of age. And then she offered him to the Father at the foot of the cross. She offered her son. She gave him up a second time at the foot of the cross. That's why Pope Pius XII says, not, only God understands the degree of glory to which he has raised the mother of God. Only he understands that. From the very beginning, God is thinking about his mom. From the very beginning, she's present in his mind. She plays that role. So anyone who tells you that somehow they're going to manage to go to heaven and tell Jesus, we love you so much, but your mother is just a vessel. She just brought you forth. She's not important. Let's put her aside. Is committing a grave mistake. And that's why it's so important for you to be fully educated in the role of Mary so you can help remove one of the greatest obstacles that so many Christians have with the Catholic faith, which is the most important, most important ally, the greatest warrior, the greatest person who can help them reach Jesus, Our Lady. And that's why Satan precisely worked so hard to get Mary out of the Protestant church. Because she is the one who can defeat him. She's the one who defeated him, and she can defeat him every time. When Mary appeared in Lourdes, and St. Bernadette was kneeling and talking to her, there were voices, she says, there were voices coming from the Gav, the river, behind her. And they were demonic voices. And St. Bernadette said, then Our Lady gazed towards the river. That's all she did. She gazed. And the voices ceased. That's all she had to do. There are actually accounts of people who were possessed. And when forced by the priest to say who, who defeats them, these same devils are forced to sing a hymn of praise to the mother of God. It tortures them, but they are forced to do it. This is the enmity that was put between her and them. This is who she is. And and here the sentence between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. The he in Hebrew is indefinite. It can go either way. It can go he or she. Right? And both are absolutely proper. You can read this as she shall bruise his, your head. Right? Because through her son she does that. And he, and you, and you shall bruise his heel, which means that you are going to be the cause of his suffering. You bruise his heel, but only his heel. You will not be able to defeat him. Now, I will greatly multiply your pain in child... To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The... The... The um, 
This business of pain is important to understand. Uh, Human are the only one, the women are the only one who feel pain when they give birth. Pain with childbearing does not exist in the animal world. It exists only among human. All right. Now, in the evolutionary theory, it's related to the to the head, actually, to the size of the head. Apparently, there is some relationship there, and that could uh, very well be the case. But the key the key here is to understand how God works, how God operates through the covenant. What God does is that He is going to punish us in the most appropriate way on earth, so that He can give us the 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 grace and the chance to win salvation and grow in glory. He's interested in making us a saint. So, if we, go th- we undergo, um, you know, if we fall sick, or if we have some pain, or some chronic pain of some sort, if you have that, rejoice. God loves you. Rejoice greatly. God loves you. Now, you might think, you know, with a God that loves me like this, what do I need an enemy that hate me? But you've got to understand the reality that we live in. We are sinners. Every one of us, the Bible says, the wise man falls seven times a day. Meaning, we fall multiple times during a day. Venial sins, hopefully. But we commit them. So none of us is justified before God. None of us is worthy to be present before God. On our own, we cannot do that. So God gives us the occasion, the opportunity, during this life to essentially suffer for those sins that we've committed. Much better than purgatory. Way better than purgatory. And when we suffer willingly, when we suffer joyfully, by this we mean that we understand, we accept our suffering as something due. We switch from, why me God? Why did you do this to me? I don't deserve this. Why is it me? To, yes Lord, your ways are always perfect. Blessed be your name. When we make that switch, we recognize that his, lo- his work in us is always a work of love. And that He allows us to suffer for our, pain, for our sins here, so that He may be able to bring us to Him. Later, you do this with your children. If your child is going on a candy binge around you know, Hallow's Eve, what do you do? You take the candy away. It's painful. Right? It's painful for the kid when they see all that candy gone. But that suffering is what they need to be weaned away from the candy. And most of us are like that. And then some of us who are pure in heart are allowed to participate in the suffering of Christ for the redemption of mankind. And these ones are the happiest. You're not living here for the short hundred years that you might live on this earth. You're an immortal being your destiny is in heaven. That's where God wants you. So I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. Why is it that in childbearing he multiplies this pain? It's precisely because of the marital... He basically punishes the woman in, in what she is. A woman. Capable of bringing forth life. He doesn't take away the ability to bring forth life. He just makes it painful. He makes it painful because the, the, the punishment is fitting to the crime. God is always just. 
She desired good for herself. She wanted to eat something which is pleasurable, and as a result, she ended up in a world of pain. She ended up in a world of pain. Now, please, those of you, women, who have had children, or those of you who will have children, do not measure, do not correlate how much pain you have in childbirth with your own sanctity. Remember, this is equated with original sin. It comes to us from original sin. We all share that. So, don't go through a guilt trip thinking that if you have a lot of pain, it means you're a greater sinner. It doesn't work this way. Don't torture yourself with this. Rather, accept it as part of the common heritage that we have in sin, and we have to get over it. And then he adds, In pain you shall bring forth children. Notice, in pain you shall bring forth children. The you shall bring forth children is a good. It's a good. Bringing forth children is the good he didn't take away. How do we know that? Because for Adam, he says, in pain, using exactly the same word in Hebrew, you shall bring forth food. Anybody thinks that bringing forth food, the food is an evil? Do you think the food is evil? So please don't think that the children are a curse. Just as food is a blessing, children are a blessing. But in pain now will you receive the blessing which you received before freely. But still, I haven't abandoned you. That's what he's saying. Just as the man is supposed to work from the Adama, the Adam working from the Adama to bring forth the food. The woman is supposed to bring forth from her own body life. Just as the man feeds the world with food, the woman builds the world with children. A woman who says to God, I don't want to have children, or I want to have three. Or a man who says to God, I don't want my wife to bear bear children, is effectively doing something similar to a black mass. On the altar, God says, Jesus says, Here is my body, offered, broken, given, so you may have food. He takes the life of the woman in his body, combines that with the food that comes from the earth, makes it his body, and now gives it freely to us to eat. We don't labor to receive that food. The food of heaven comes to us freely. The woman who commits abortion or doesn't have a child says instead to the child, here is my body. Actually, she says to the child, this is your body that will be killed so I may have the life that I want. It's the the reverse of the words of consecration. Effectively, the words of desecration. And just to let you know, abortion typically is associated with a curse. A woman who aborts a child is cursing him. It's a big deal. It's it's a great evil. And we have to pray for them because many of them are ignorant. Many of them don't know what they're doing. So I'm not speaking these words in condemnation. I'm speaking these words in sorrow. But to let you be aware of the great battle you're engaged in as a Christian... 
So any one of us, for instance, who's thinking about voting for a candidate who supports abortion, if you vote for a candidate at any level, any candidate who is pro-abortion, you are effectively committing a mortal sin. Do you understand that? You have no choice in the matter. Everything else pales in comparison to this one sin. Everything else. So get your priorities straight when it comes to voting at all levels. Because you are a representative of God. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, I don't have time to go through the rest in detail. So what I, all I will say to you is this. Adam gets condemned because of the fact that he listened to the voice of his wife. What does that mean? Not that, how could you listen to a woman? What's wrong with you, man? No. What he means in the context is your woman gave you the wrong advice and you listened to her. Why? Because you chose to. You decided to listen to the voice of a creature over the voice of the Creator. That's the message. You understand that? That's the message. And so, because he did that, he's then now condemned to work all the days of his life. God doesn't say, you will work until you're 65 years old and then you can go in retirement in Hawaii. Sit on the beach and do nothing. Uh-uh. doesn't say that. So you have to work mostly at your salvation all the days of your life. There's no retirement from Jesus Christ. All right. And the man called his wife's name Eve, which means Haya. And also in Aramaic, there's a play on word. Because the word um, Haya is close to a word in Aramaic, which means serpent. Okay, Meaning that uh, there's these two aspects to it, to now to our own nature. One which brings forth life, but one which brings forth death. Our nature now has been effectively broken. And he called her Eve because she's the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments. This garments here, it really means a shirt. It's a shirt, either long sleeve or short sleeve, that goes all the way to the knees or to the ankles. Why did he cover them with this? Because he needed to hide away their shame. The purpose of garments mostly was for the hiding away of the shame, to protect us. It is for modesty. And, I, and, I heard, and you heard me speak last time about modesty and its importance in clothing. And again, women are called to look into this fashion business and do something about it. Right? To bring back modest fashion. It is something that is essential. Absolutely essential. And, and God is the one who pro provided the clothing. He cares for them. You see that the curse was medicinal. The purpose of it is to bring them back to Him. It's going to be a very long journey before they come back to Him. But He will bring them back. Just the same with us. He closes us. He feeds us. He takes care of us. He saves us. He's present and active in our lives. Today, tomorrow, yesterday. We have to meet Him at the cool of day. We have to make the time to listen to Him. And when we do so, He blesses us with peace. God bless you.
Well, we, we have actually time for questions. Yes. Correct. There is a sacrifice of animals to cover them because the least of the creatures serve the greatest of the creature. Animals serve humans. This is also an indication why the notion that we need to be vegetarian is simply not founded. He obviously sacrificed some animals. Some of the rabbis would say he actually used the skins of a serpent, which would be fitting. But, of course, it's just... Uh, Speculation, But yes, the, the animal sacrifice here must have happened. God had to sacrifice some animals to use their skins to cover our shame. And there's a lot to be said about this. I don't have time to cover it. But I refer you particularly to, to the book of Leviticus and what, where, where they speak about the proper garment for offering sacrifice. The one thing I would say is when you come to Mass, especially when you come to Mass, especially you women when you come to Mass, Stand before the mirror. Imagine the Blessed Virgin standing next to you and ask her this question. Is this acceptable before your son? And if you have something on you that you would not wear to go to a wedding, don't wear it to come to Mass. Alright? Question? Yes? Yeah, the question is, uh, what about the current medication that helps women overcome pain of childbirth? I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Makes my wife happy? Why not? Medicine is a good thing. Medicine is a crutch that we have to use to simulate the condition we lived, Adam and Eve lived in before original sin. It's a good thing. Medicine is a very good thing. Right? So, absolutely, epidurals are great. No, no problem with that. Incidentally, bringing children in pain doesn't just mean when you give birth to them. It also entails all the pain of rearing children. All the suffering goes into bringing forth kids. All of this was not supposed to happen because before the fall, the children would have been ordered. They would have had all their... There would be no disorder in them. You wouldn't have to fight with a kid to eat candy. You wouldn't want to touch a candy. There would be no such temptation. So therefore, it's the whole gamut, not just the moment of bringing uh, forth children. Yes. What language did Adam and Eve speak in? Obviously, we do not know. St. Augustine would argue that they, he, they spoke Hebrew and that the language of heaven is Hebrew. That's, of course, speculation. That's St. Augustine. Uh, we don't know. Yes. Very good. This is much better, right? So there, there's this gradation. There's a gradation. God is good. So somebody who's listening, say, to, uh, to uh, heavy metal, if he can move on to listen to Christian rock, that's progress. Right? It's not what God wants for him. So he moved from plan Z to plan X. It's progress. Good. Is it what really what God wants? No. So when, we sp when God speaks to our soul, our emotions are completely at rest. We need... To, to learn to distinguish between God speaking to the soul and God speaking to our emotions. Now, he knows sometimes that's what we need. St. Saint, Saint John of the Cross says that many of us have what is called spiritual sweet tooth. Right? We like the spiritual candy because we need them, and he'll give it to, them, to us. But eventually, as we grow in our faith, that kind of goes away. He weans us from this to bring us into that silence where he feeds us the food that he really wants for us. So I would say, as long as you are deriving benefit, meaning that it's turning your face towards Jerusalem, 
turning your face towards God, keep on listening to them. The day that you find that somehow you're listening to them, but you're distracted, it's not capturing you, you're not in the presence of God, that's the time where you move on. All right? Yes. Yes, melody is that part of the music that speaks to the soul. Harmony is that part of the music that speaks to the emotions. And the rhythm is the part of the music that speaks to the body. Okay? And that's why, if you notice, you put rock and roll, you put tango, you put uh, jazz, you put most of these music, and you watch people dancing, what moves are the hips? This particular area is the area that moves. If you notice the music which is folkloric, all the music from all across the world, where there is melody, all the folkloric music is melodious. Melody reigns supreme. How do they dance? If you've seen Irish dancing, if you've seen traditional um, Lebanese, Greek, Russian, you name it, which part of the body moves? The shoulders and the legs, nothing else. And you don't have to teach people that. That's how they move. Because the music compels them to move this way. Switch over to rock. Switch over to jazz. And you will see different parts of the body moving. Yes. Very good question. How come Adam and Eve did not have the gift of bearing children until they had, they had to leave? Adam and Eve had the gift of bearing children before. But they were living in a state of innocence. God was preparing them. And all that was robbed away from them. You understand? Yes. Because before the fall, concupiscence did not enter into their minds. They lived in a state of innocence. All their emotions, all their desires, all their passions were completely ordered to do God's will. And God was preparing them for this. But then they took it away. That's the tragedy. Essentially, the devil robbed them from what God wanted to give to them. The devil robbed them from what was already theirs, but God was preparing them. And so it is with us. It's like somebody who's not yet ready to be married, either because emotionally he's not ready, or intellectually he's not ready, and he doesn't want to listen to you. And he does it anyhow. And you know what the consequences are going to be. That's what's going on here. It was not a gift. It became, in a sense, also a part of a curse because pain entered into it whereas before it was only joy yes in regards to playing at night uh, in the dark how do I feel about lighting a candle I, um, I would say this if lighting a candle helps you focus do it everything is in gradation again depends where people are eventually you, God will move you along the way to not even light that candle because he wants to be your candle See? Yes. Yes and no. Let's be very careful. You're absolutely correct. Plan A was perfect. There was no suffering in plan A. But God foreknew that. He knew what was going to happen. So even when the devil went about causing the fall of Adam and Eve, God knew that through this act, he was going to bring about a greater good. Because with Adam and Eve, they only had natural beatitude. Beatitude here on earth. What he gave us with Christ is supernatural beatitude. Right? So God is always in control. That's the key I wanted to make sure you were, understand. It's not like God did this and then, oh well, he, what, uh, poor God, what can he do? 
That's the part we have to move. We should not. We have to give the devil his due, but not give him more. All right. Yes. Oh, good question. Did the did the fall of the devil and the other angels seal the fate of man? Meaning that if the devil did not fall, man would not have fall. Right? Is that? Oh no, 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 no. There was no imperfection in the creation of Adam and Eve. If that's what you're tending to. Meaning that the angels were of a higher nature and they fell. Therefore, it implies that man must fall. Because he has less what they have. True, he has less than what they have. But he had a lot more help. God was in the garden. God didn't leave man to himself. We have no excuse. Adam has no excuse. If God said, alright Adam, here it is. I'll come and see you in a thousand years. Goodbye. Be a different story. But he was with him every day. He took care of him. He gave him everything he needed. No excuse. Yes. Yes. There, let's be very clear. There is a difference between intent in the heart and the actual action. Right? From what we can see, from what we can tell, as we meditate on this, there is an intent in Adam's heart. Something was going wrong. Something was festering. It didn't come to fruition until that moment. So it's not like he sinned before. He committed an actual sin. See, there's a difference between um, not committing a sin and loving God. Right? I can do the Ten Commandments. I can be righteous, not commit a sin, but I'm not in love with God. All right? So Adam was being righteous. He was being like the old son, the older son. I did everything you asked me to do. But there's no love. And that led to the sin. So it's not enough for us to say, okay, what do I have to do so I don't sin? As soon as we say that, we're already in trouble. We're already in trouble. It'd be like a um, youth who asks the question, all right, if I want to kiss a girl, how far is too far? It's already too far. So you just ask the question, it's already too far. Do you get it? Why? Because when you ask that question, you've already objectified the girl. You're saying, okay, how much ice cream can I eat? A pound or two pounds? You've turned her into an ice cream. It's already too far. You've missed the point. So pull back. Go back and ask God to help you. Because the point is that she is going to be a gift to you. If she's going to walk with you all the rest of your life, God has given her as a gift. God is your father-in-law. She is his daughter. Don't mess with her. That's how we have to look at it. There was a school out there somewhere, a boy, boys-only school, and across there was a girls-only school. Uh, on Valentine's Day, the boys went to the girls' school while the girls were away and went into the cafeteria, and they've put on the plate of every girl a rose and on that rose was written you are worth waiting for when the girls came back they flipped because the boys were telling them you are precious you are precious notice how that word was taken out of our language replaced with sexy sexy is all about oh you're the ice cream precious has an altogether different meaning. You are precious in my sight. 
That's why poetry is out of the school. That's why boys don't learn poetry anymore. Because you're not sexy when you know poetry. We don't know how to speak beautifully anymore. Only that has to be reclaimed by you guys. You. And you. You have to reclaim all this. So, there. Think about those things. Last question. Anybody? Yes. A, a mortal sin is something that one has committed that really breaks the commandment. It's a big deal. Right? So, it's best, whenever possible, to go to confession regularly. If you can't, right? If you can't, and let's say you had some improper thoughts, but you did not will them, you did not want them, you did not fully enjoy them, you had disdain towards them. That's very good. Right? If you just had some, some thoughts, then ask God to forgive you, go through Mass, all right? And if it was a fleeting thought, something you didn't dwell on forever, ages, and it didn't turn into something else, it's probably venial. If you have any doubt, talk to the priest about it. And he will help you. He will counsel you appropriately. Father, you would, would you want to say something about this one? No? no, no, no. no? Okay. So, so th- that's what you probably want to do. We, there's two things we have to avoid. One is thinking we're, we're saints. I never commit anything wrong. Right? You just rob the bank, but I'm fine. I did it to feed my cousin. Right? Th- so have no scrupulosity whatsoever. The other one is scrupulosity. Oh, no. A leaf fell before me. I must have done this. I can't receive communion. I mean, you laugh, but people do fall into scrupulosity where they just can't move because they think they're committing a mortal sin at every breath. So these are the two extremes we have to, to avoid. If it's something that happens to you, but you just don't want it, it's one thing, right? It's a completely different thing when you really commit a big, big sin. It's an act. It has to be willed. You must know it's a mortal sin. So, for instance, a girl who takes contraception. She knows that the the church teaches you're not supposed to take contraception. She goes ahead. She buys them. She takes them. She just committed a mortal sin. Simple as that. Okay? Okay? You know you're not supposed to kill. Right? Well, if you actually think about killing, go get a gun and kill somebody, you just committed mortal sin. That, that sort of stuff. Right? Somebody who is a, a, an alcoholic, if you get drunk on your own, if you decide, I'm going to get drunk, and you get drunk, you committed a mortal sin. You deformed the, uh, the, 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 the face of God in you. But an alcoholic, someone addicted to alcohol, who has no control over it, is not committing a mortal sin. Because he doesn't have the will to do it or not do it. A drug addict is somebody who doesn't, who's, not, who's shooting himself. He's now completely addicted. He's not committing a mortal sin. Or somebody who got addicted because of medication. Right? Different. You know, in, in the sexual arena, a lot of guys and these days girls are having certain problems Right, the big M word, which I don't want to necessarily pronounce here for depends on the audience. And when they get addicted to it, the addiction forces them to do it over and over and over again. Well, that's not a moral sin. It's part of the problem. The only way to get over it is to really get close to Jesus Christ, to love him and meditate on the cross. 
going to confession and meditation on the cross, on the passion. Meditate on the passion. If you have that problem, if you are stuck with sexual addiction and you want to get out of it, meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ. Learn from Him. Learn how He bore our pain. See how He put up with the suffering. When they beat Him, Jesus did not complain. Not because He was weak, but because precisely He's so strong. He's a man. Did not complain. So when you are under that pain of that sexual desire hitting at you, hitting you like a wave about to break you down, think about Jesus being beaten. Think about Him being hurt. And as your love for Him grows, as your love for Jesus grows and becomes strong, you still repeat, Jesus, make, me, make my heart, make me meek and humble of heart like you. Meek and humble of heart like you. And you repeat that. And eventually, the love that you have for Jesus Christ will free you from your addiction. And you will become a man. But in the meantime, if you're stuck with that, please don't torture yourself. If you're stuck with an addiction, something you cannot control, something where you will is incapable of making a free decision, don't torture yourself by thinking that you're separated from God. You need His grace. Come to Him. Go to confession and receive communion as often as you can. Alright? Because He loves you. He knows where you are. He knows our weaknesses. He knows we're weak. As long as we're trying... He's there to bring us to Him. But meditate on His suffering. See how He suffers. Not just on how He's being beaten. Don't meditate on the guys beating Him. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can see yourself in this. Because you're beating Him just like they did. But meditate on how He receives it. They put that crown of thorns on His head. He doesn't deserve it. It's not necessary. It's not part of the punishment. It's just, they do it just to amuse themselves. And they drive those thorns through his skull. In his skin. Not a word of complaint. Not because he's weak. But because precisely he loves. Learn from him. Learn to love like he loves. You'll become a man. And you will become women. When you learn to love him this way. And then you will look for men who are capable of loving you this way. Because that's what you deserve. And you deserve nothing else. Nothing less. God bless you. Let's finish with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www. Thank you and God bless you.